Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Around 13 million children in Nigeria don't go to school, perhaps more than anywhere else in the world. Many are sent into the streets to beg by their religious teachers, an ancient practice under new scrutiny. And our correspondent reports from Trakai in southeastern Lithuania, where a series of concerts were performed by members of one of Europe's smallest ethnic minority groups who have been living in the region for more than 600 years. But first... Canceling student debt has long been a preoccupation of the American left. Mr. President, millions of Americans ask you now to pick up a pen and cancel student loan debt, to pick up a pen and extend the payment pause, to pick up a pen and make their lives better. And it was literally easier for me to become the youngest woman in American history elected to Congress than it is to pay off my student loan debt. That is why this proposal completely eliminates student debt in this country and ends the absurdity of sentencing an entire generation, the millennial generation, to a lifetime of debt for the crime of doing the right thing, and that is going out and getting a higher education. And this week, it happened. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. Those who had received Pell Grants, generally students from poor families, get another $10,000 canceled. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. Working and middle-class people hit especially hard during the pandemic. The forgiveness applies to those earning less than $125,000 a year, which describes 95% of all Americans. It's a controversial decision that came after months of deliberations, and it's by no means settled. Ever since Joe Biden came into office, progressives in his party have been nagging him to do something unilaterally about student debt. Idris Kaloon is The Economist's Washington bureau chief. For a while, Joe Biden dithered on that. On August 24th, he announced a policy that would cancel for most borrowers $10,000 of debt. And also for those who receive Pell Grants, which go to poor students, $20,000 of debt cancellation. This is an enormous deal. Previously, a lot of people had wondered whether the president had the authority to even do this. Biden has jumped into the fray and said that he does and is prepared to spend what might be upwards of $400 billion in order to do that. And the power he's asserting doesn't cover only loans already taken out, right? There are some, there are some planks that will affect future borrowers as well. 
Yes, that's right. One of the lesser notice changes that Biden proposed would modify the way that the student load program works. The federal government would cap payments for people at 5% of discretionary income. That's down from 10% now. And he would also, the federal government, cover the monthly interest payments for people so that balances don't increase over time, which is a fairly large modification. It's one that isn't going through Congress, but is going to be asserted basically through the Department of Education. But if he did do that, that means that the federal government would be on the hook for making up future loans as well. And can Joe Biden just do this? Why does he believe he has this power? So... The way the Higher Education Act, which set up the modern federal student loan system back in 1965, is written, seems to grant the education secretary pretty broad remit to waive and release student loans. It's never been used in this broad a fashion before, but uh, the president, who previously seemed to think that he didn't have the authority to do so, as did House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, now has reconsidered that argument and and is prepared to do broad-based change. Whenever a president asserts that they have sweeping legal authority on a theory that hasn't been tested before, legal challenges are sure to follow. And we won't know whether or not this action survives until this has had its day in court, which I believe will be coming. And what kind of numbers are we talking about? How big an impact will this have? So for existing borrowers, it will matter a good deal. It might wipe out the existing student loan debt for close to half of existing borrowers. And so for those people, this action will be significant. In terms of expenditures, this is really expensive. The executive action proposed on Wednesday is still being costed, but the exact estimates might entail an expenditure of between $400 billion and $600 billion. Many economists, including a few who worked for Barack Obama, have said that an expenditure of this size could increase inflation, which is the exact opposite of what the Biden administration is trying to do at the moment. Back in March 2020, when the pandemic started, student loans were all paused, so no one had to make any payments. That's been extended many times since. And on August 24th, the president announced that there would be a final extension until December 2022. And that isn't free. That probably costs the federal government about $5 billion a month. It's very broad-based. It's going to everyone who has student loans. That includes people who are not doing so well, but also people who have graduate loans and high-cost medical degree programs and and law degree programs. You know, everyone is getting a a bit of money, a bit of help, even when other pandemic relief programs have all basically ended. So progressives have been pushing for this for a lot of years. What are the drawbacks? What's the problem with this policy? One problem with progressives championing this policy is that it's not very progressive, particularly the sort of broad universal forgiveness that they were pushing. What Biden has done is tried to make a fairly regressive policy as progressive as possible. But still, it's a net transfer of hundreds of billions of dollars to people with college degrees who generally go on to earn more money than people without it. So, for example, if you complete an undergraduate degree in America, your earnings are generally 65% higher than someone who's just finished high school. If you complete a professional degree, which are the costliest degrees to get, your wage premium is 138% over someone who has just finished high school. We're still waiting to see what the overall distributional impact of the proposal will be. But we know that a blanket forgiveness of $10,000, even with the income cap that was proposed, would mean that 70% of the benefits went to the richest 60% of Americans. A lot of people who end up going to school in the first place and taking out loans are still in the, in the upper middle of the income distribution. And of course, the measure does nothing about the ultimate source of these problems, right, which is the ballooning costs of higher education. Is there a case to be made that the government could do something about that? 
Yeah, I think that is the biggest problem. You know, if there was a big, broad reform to the exorbitant cost of higher education in America, and as part of that grand negotiation, there was a, a debt forgiveness component like this, I think that's something that, that people could come to live with. But the problem with this sort of one-off debt forgiveness without any reform to the actual financing of college education is that you're just going to fill the student loan debt back up again. It might take about five years is the estimate now. And you also have created what economists call a moral hazard, where if you basically give very easy funding with the prospect of possible forgiveness later on, and without imposing any cost controls, that's a recipe for increasing the cost of education, which is already very high. So this was an example of Joe Biden doing what he could, basically asserting an executive authority when the real problem would require congressional action to fix, and it might not have happened. So the argument, I think, for the administration is that this is better than nothing, and it remains to be seen whether or not that ends up being true. You mentioned earlier that the loan repayment pause has been extended until December 2022. That is, of course, one month after the midterm elections. What are the implications of that? Yeah. So one of the things that is said to have convinced President Biden to drop his reticence at doing such an extraordinary action was uh, the chief of staff, Ron Klain, who said that a policy like this would really boost the president's numbers among young voters who seem disaffected and seem to uniquely dislike the president right now. So progressives hope that this will energize disaffected young people and perhaps motivate them to turn out to the polls. But, you know, it's not quite as simple as that. Some moderate Democrats in swing states that are going to be very important for control of the Senate this cycle have come out against the proposal. Tim Ryan, who is running for a hotly contested Senate seat in Ohio, said that the policy, quote, sends the wrong message to the millions of Ohioans without a degree working just as hard to make ends meet. Catherine Cortez Masto, who's running to keep her Senate seat in Nevada, has also come out against the policy. So it doesn't seem to be a slam dunk in some of the states that Democrats need to win. Republicans, on the other hand, think that this is a winning issue for them. They blasted what they call student loan socialism, and they say that it's a redistribution from the working class to elites. It's inflationary. It undermines whatever the Democrats hope to achieve with their Inflation Reduction Act. This is an unusual situation, which both parties think that this action is to their political advantage. Despite how extraordinary the expenditure was, there's been no real fundamental reform for the student loan system. So I imagine that we'll end up arguing about the same things in five years time. All right, Idris, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. In Nigeria's capital of Abuja... Young boys begging for food or small change is a common sight. They might be singing mournful songs in Hausa, a language widely spoken in the north of the country. Nigerians sometimes accuse the boys of being thugs for hire or being led astray into terrorist groups. 
But these children often are not living on the streets. They're forced to go out and beg by their religious teachers. They're part of an educational system that has carried on for centuries. There are an estimated 30 million out-of-school children in Nigeria. Abu Bakr Adam Ibrahim writes for The Economist from Nigeria. 10 million out of those 30 million are estimated to be Almajiri, or the Almajire, as they are called in Hausa, which is the language spoken in the north of Nigeria, are children who are handed over to religious teachers to memorize the Quran. And these teachers travel with them without parental supervision to other places where the children are forced to live in squalor, go to beg for food on the streets, and then uh, study in the mornings and in the evenings. The term al-Majiri comes from the Arabic al-Muhajir, meaning immigrants, with connotation of someone searching for religious knowledge or freedom. And these children are boys, no girls are included, but for the boys, they are conscripted into this program after being surrendered by their parents. And what is life like for, for these children? It's really pathetic, to be honest. They mostly live in what we call Zauri, which is like a hall, a vestibule in a building. It's basically a large room. Uh, where they spread out mouths on the floor and just uh, sleep wherever they find space. They don't have access to, you know, conveniences, and uh, they have very little access to food, which means that they have to go out every day to beg for food and to beg for money that they will use to pay for their education. And uh, they are often subjected to some kind of abuse when you have the teacher who has a prayer bead in one hand and uh, a horse whip in the other, you know, trying to enforce learning in that manner. Is this practice damaging to children in the long term? Well, I mean, there's been arguments for and against the system. There are people who support this practice and because it's something that's been going on for centuries. Islam was introduced to the north of Nigeria in the 14th century, ever since this practice has been in place. And in the last 100 years, I think it's kind of uh, exploded and come into conflict with Western education. So there are people who argue for this system and believe that it's overall wholesome for the children, that they kind of get the experience of living out on their own at a very early age. And most crucially for them, they get to memorize the Quran. But there are others who argue that it is detrimental to the children because they grow up without parental supervision and parental affection, and that affects their overall uh, state of being mentally and socially. Some of them go as long as eight, seven, six years without seeing their parents or relatives. And uh, you can imagine the kind of impact that has on children who grow up without those connections that are very, very vital to human evolution and growth. There are also aspects where people say, you know, when you teach them only the Quran, then what else do they use to live? People feel that now in this age, these children need to acquire skills and uh, a formal education to be able to apply themselves to society. And that is not often the case when children are surrendered to the system. And so the government hasn't been able to end the practice, but has it intervened in any way? There have been interventions over the years. When I was researching for the story, I discovered that there were government documents from the 1960s that were suggesting a way of moderating or regulating the system of education. None of those regulations have been pursued with any level of success. There were issues in uh, around 2014, for instance, when the federal government decided to build schools, integrating the traditional system of memorizing Quran 
and introducing formal education. And the students or children are going to be put in boarding houses in the schools and have teachers who are going to teach them other subjects that are relevant to their educational growth and development. So the government invested about 150 billion naira thereabouts to build 157 schools across the country. The schools were built, the program started, but the system collapsed eventually for two reasons. Mainly, the government that started that program was voted out of office. The government that followed did not continue with that program. And so has there ever been anything that challenged the practice of keeping kids so long in the system? During 2020, during the outbreak of COVID, some state governments decided to relocate these children back to their parents. Right, So they rounded them up and uh, moved them across state lines. In a situation of utter chaos that is occasioned by the lockdown, some of them ended up moving COVID across state lines. And they were frightened and terrified, and they had no idea what was going to happen to them. Eventually, after lockdown, the children found their way back to their original schools, and uh, the system has continued. At the moment, in most states of the north of Nigeria, there is officially a ban on the practice, but most people feel that ban is just paper declaration by the government. There hasn't been any kind of attempt to seriously enforce the ban. As far as everyone is concerned, this practice is still going on as it has always been. Abu Bakr, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure. Simon Broughton, our correspondent, has been traveling in Eastern Europe, where he met members of one of Europe's smallest and least known minority groups. This concert is taking place in Trakai, Lithuania, on the shore of Lake Galvie. And this song, the town of Trakai, describes the lake rising from the tears of a man whose beloved is promised to another. This is a celebration and gathering of the Karaim, one of Europe's smallest minorities who've lived here in Trakai since the late 14th century. Karim were first invited here, Lithuania and Poland were in a union together, and this town was part of Poland till World War II. Karolina Czika, the leader of this group, is Polish, but joined here by a local Karaim singer, Tatiana Moskiewicz. I felt very privileged to be able to make this music with Karaims from Trakai. I was feeling that I should not come to somebody's house without putting off my shoes. I felt that I should really be careful and not experiment a lot with the music, just make arrangements. 
About 300 Karaim families were invited here by Grand Duke Vitautus in 1397 as guardians and soldiers and given land along this street between the two castles of the town. Official figures say that there are now only 196 Karaim living in Lithuania. And they're announcing this year of the Karaim. The Prime Minister, Ingrida Simonite, called them unique treasures. Karina Fekavicute is one of them, with a house here on Karaim Street. We were happy to see the highest representatives of our country coming and celebrating our anniversary and uh, saying us uh, and congratulating us. So really a good relationship is, is carrying on. My name is Dominika Kobetskita. I'm 19 years old. And how is it playing with musicians like Karolina who've got interested in this music? Well, in this, is, this is amazing. I actually feel very thankful because uh, people from Poland are interested and they're helping us to show our culture. So basically she's creating music. That's her vision, but it represents our culture very, very well. So she basically helps us to save our culture and this means a lot. Another part of Karaim identity is the food, which is popular with Lithuanians as well. This song, The Smell of Fridays, is about the food being prepared on Karaim Street for the Saturday. Grilled shashliks, moon-shaped kibin pastries, and the circular kubite pies likened to the sun or a shield. I say blessing for the sun and for our smell of Friday, you know, like the local here and the universe. It's so nice. The, the poet is Shimon Firkovich, one of the biggest Turkish poets. It's not only the, the food song, it's also the song about the local and the universe, like local here and the universe, like a sun, like a moon, everything is joined. But here is the center of, of, of the world. Very, 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 very touching. For this event, Karim have come to Trakai from Lithuania and Poland and from the diaspora in Turkey and Europe and as far away as Canada. Elias Robachevskis is from Lithuania but currently living in London and learning Karim once a week by Skype. He's playing violin in some of the songs with Karolina Chika's band. And I was feeling quite proud to play Karaim music because I'm one because I'm a Karaim myself and the community is pretty small, but we still have music and we still sing it to this day. And it seems to me that music is a way of keeping it in a way more alive. It feels as if even though the Karaim language is dying out, music isn't. At least we have the music and it's always in our hearts.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show was edited by Marguerite Howell. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Timo Salia. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, with extra production help this week from Elna Schutz. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.